financial feminist the financial feminist Feminist, yeah. Welcome to the Financial Feminist Podcast. I'm your host, the Financial Feminist, and this is our news podcast, taking a global outlook on feminist wins making the news this week. I'm recording this from and acknowledge the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, and in doing so, I pay my respects to elders past and present. In this news podcast, we're covering stories making the news across different parts of the world and learning from what's happening across different cultures, acknowledging wins, and taking a more intersectional approach to feminism, which we've nuanced with a look at finances because money means power and we're here to dissect it. Let's look at some financial and feminist news this week with me, your host, The Financial Feminist. Last week, I had a dream that the gender pay gap data was published, it was transparent, and women saw it. They stepped away from their unpaid labor they do on top of their day jobs. They said no more, they rose up, and they burned down the patriarchy. That would have made a better Barbie movie, but unfortunately, it was a dream, and none of that actually happened. Instead, data released last week showed that the gender pay gap does exist for all those who didn't believe us the first time. The Guardian reported that of 3,000 employees who were included in this data report, at least 60% had a gender pay gap that favoured men. And for any of you who are worried about women taking over the earth, don't worry, because just over 8% of companies had a pay gap that favoured women. To quote the Workforce Gender Equality Agency guidance, they wanted to clarify that this isn't around equal pay, it's medium remuneration. So if you have a lot of men who are highly paid and a lot of women who are lower paid, the gender pay gap will reflect that. It's a feminist issue because, quite frankly, the line around equal pay being illegal, that doesn't match reality. Anyone who's gone through a recruitment process can tell you that. Salaries are often not advertised. You're asked for your expectations, I believe I mentioned in a previous podcast episode. And when salaries are advertised, they're advertised as a range, and it's up to you to negotiate your way through that. So no, you are not paid the same for doing the same work. Gender aside, people are not paid the same for equal work. That's not the reality on the ground right now. A very real gender pay gap does exist because of additional factors too, including the lack of availability and rising costs of childcare, which quite frankly should probably be free given we know the value of early childhood education and we know it's important that everyone has access to it. So what about this gender pay gap data report? We've got to celebrate. It's great the data exists. But we also have to acknowledge that the data alone won't fix the issue. And it didn't feel like a win for me personally when the data was published because I and many people I know were not represented in it. The data did not include non-private sectors, including the public sector, and it didn't include companies who had less than 100 employees at the time the report was put together. Our salaries are not public until someone in HR accidentally leaves that information on the photocopier and creates corporate chaos. The conversation had a really good breakdown of the data release, including the fact that some companies may choose to compare themselves to their competitors in the sector and reason they're not out of step with their industry, normalizing that pay gap. They also argue that equipping women with the data of their industry and company median salaries doesn't necessarily shield them from gender biases, including the backlash that women often face when trying to salary bargain or negotiate. This is clearly a financial issue because money is one indicator of value. And when we pay a woman a lower median salary, we allow gender economic equity to continue unchecked. Companies ultimately aren't motivated by social change. 
They're motivated by a single factor above all else at the end of the day, and that is profit. That could include what happened in Denmark when the gender pay gap narrowed because men's faster wage growth slowed down, which doesn't seem like the message we're seeking, but could be something corporations choose to do if it saves them money. As it stands from the data report, across all industries in Australia and companies that were included in the report, women are earning on average less than men. It remains to be seen what the fallout will be from this data, but it does provide you with the opportunity to see a median pay gap and learn from it. And I want to take the time to thank everyone at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency for taking the step to advocate for, compile and publish this data. Having corporate data to start drawing from when having this gender pay gap conversation means that we don't have to keep arguing from the position of needing to prove the gender pay gap exists and is worth addressing. So what can you do? If you live in a country where pay gap data does exist, take the next step to engage with the data, including advocating for greater inclusion of people not yet represented in the data set. And if a data set doesn't exist where you're based, why not advocate to make it happen, including examples of how it's been done in other countries and how you could adapt it to do it better in your context. This data set does provide a really efficient clapback as well to those who still live in denial about the gender pay gap. For Australia, news.com.au gave that honour to a Nationals MP who said that the data pay gap was, and I quote, useless and an annual Andrew Tate recruitment drive. Given Mr. Tate is awaiting trial in Romania on charges of human trafficking, sexual assault, and forming a criminal gang to sexually exploit women, I would strongly encourage men, like the one cited, to recognise that when he makes comments like that, he contributes to our year-round recruitment campaign for the feminist movement. And unlike Mr. Tate, with us, we have the nuance to recognise that all genders are welcome to join. For our second story, picture this. You're working in a workaholic culture where there's ultra-competitive pressure in the workspace, in a country with one of the worst gender pay gaps in the OECD. Would you take time out for motherhood? That's how Al Jazeera framed the news of South Korea's declining birth rate. South Korea has the lowest birth rate in the world, and news came last week that the already low birth rate had reached a new record. For a population to remain consistent, the birth rate, or the number of children born to a mother in the country, should be 2.1. In South Korea, it's now 0.72. It's a feminist issue because much of the reporting focused on the cost of the country, but very little space in articles reporting on that birth rate drop was actually given to the voice of women in South Korea, those who typically give birth, and that had the effect of implicitly blaming women for the declining birth rate. So we looked at a BBC article which took a different tact. Many policymakers have been accused of not listening to the needs of young people, and young women in particular, so the BBC spent a year travelling around the country speaking to women to understand the reasons behind decisions not to have children. That included not finding men who would share the chores and childcare equally, in a country where only around 2% of births occurred outside marriage, that's significant. Facing long working hours, implicit pressure from companies for women to leave their jobs after having children, being passed over for promotion after taking maternity leave, and the cost of housing being too high to juggle a family and a career. The report interviews frame the issue as one of gender economic equity, whereby gender roles directly affect job prospects and how much responsibility falls to you if you have children. It's a trend that many countries are seeing because we're telling half the population you can be anything you want to be, but then creating an economy whereby we don't have as much of a choice about whether or not to work, but the expectation to have children and how that is handled has not changed. 
This is a worldwide issue because many countries are seeing their birth rates fall and birth rate declines have impacts on the wider economy, including pensions for aging populations, as well as national security. Financial incentives have been offered to couples in South Korea who have children, including monthly handouts and subsidized housing and IVF treatments for those who are married. However, despite those incentives, the trend still isn't declining. Perhaps if governments, including but not limited to South Korea, want to address the declining birth rates of their country, they should start by asking a question framed in that questionable but still watchable rom-com movie starring Helen Hunt and Mel Gibson, namely What Women Want. Because rarely does the average politician reflect the experience of the entire country, particularly in South Korea, for example, where around 20% of politicians are women. It's therefore by having ongoing conversations that delve into the why and then co-design and co-lead solutions to the issue that you're much more likely to have the effect you want. And if you can birth a more equal future from that, all the better. For our last story, I have a question for you. Who thinks that Kylie Minogue's career is just lucky, lucky, lucky? Well, not us, because a 40-year career in music doesn't just happen. It's a testament to hard work, talent, reinvention, and finding relevance with new audiences. And thankfully, the Brits, the UK Music Awards scene agreed, and they crowned the Australian singer Kylie Minogue with the Global Icon Award at the awards show in London and lauded her as a master of musical reinvention. 55-year-old Kylie was named the Eternal Queen of Pop after selling 80 million records worldwide and being the first female artist to score a number one album in five consecutive decades in the UK. I just did something there I don't normally do, but most news reports do. And it's pretty significant. I just started my sentence with Kylie's age. I very deliberately did that because it's something that made headlines last year. Despite her single Padam Padam winning Best Pop Dance Recording at the 2024 Grammy Awards, the national broadcaster in the UK, BBC Radio 1, refused to add the song to their playlist, despite it being in the top 10 singles chart. When questioned, the BBC stated they would only approve tracks based on musical merit and whether it's right for their target audience. Musical merit wasn't in doubt given Padam Padam was the UK summer hit. This led to accusations of ageism, given Kylie is 55 and women are held to a different standard by the music industry. Just look at how newspapers snipe about Madonna's looks, despite her looking amazing and putting huge amounts of hard work and financial resources into achieving that incredible look. The BBC did eventually add Kylie to one of their playlists, where her music was played much less than the main tracks of the week, and Kylie had the grace to shrug off ageism, crediting the younger generation for her chart success and saying, they're not ageist, they don't care, which is so refreshing. We love the song, it's a banger, they're in. Now, as gracious as Kylie's response was, ageism comments that she and other female artists are often subjected to do have an impact, and they reveal the age discrimination which many people in society are still having to navigate today. And frankly, that's something that all feminists should care about, because if it doesn't affect you now, it will one day. For the Australian context, given Kylie is Australian, the number of older Australians aged 65 and over is expected to more than double by 2057. Women have longer life expectancies, but will on average earn a lower salary, in part due to the gender pay gap, and a range of other factors, including having to take on a greater share of domestic and caring duties, on average. What's more is the income gap then adds up over time to impact their retirement savings because retirement savings are drawn from your salary and retirement contributions made across your working life. 
So it's no surprise that many women who live longer than men, on average, have less retirement savings and may want to stay in the workplace for longer than the age they might qualify for the age pension or typically retire. So the power of people like Kylie continuing to have a successful career across five decades is key because it redefines societal expectations. And that helps reset expectations people might have for women in particular and dismantle some of the ageist attitudes unfortunately we're still seeing. Kylie also beams as a green light for women to keep going, to keep reinventing themselves, to shake off illogical decisions and instead listen to the fans they love and who love her music. So we dedicate this episode to you, Kylie, for being an incredible icon that all women can look up to and say, yes, I can too. If you've enjoyed the episode and can leave us a review, that would make my day and it would make my heart indeed go padam padam. I've been The Financial Feminist. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Financial Feminist. Come back soon. Financial Feminist